If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be goddamn tremendous. And here's why. In this episode, we're finding answers to what's at a GM's fingertips as they run a game. And what are the crucial points of running a game? What kind of notes do you take? All that jazz. And how does a good GM fly by the seat of their pants like a wonderful butterfly? <laughs> Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Jordan. And I'm his brother, Travis. So, Jordan, what do you do right before running a game? Well... My brain goes blank because uh, kind of the panic. I drink a lot of water out of nervousness, and then I have to go to the bathroom a lot. And then sweat I could just kind of yeah, sweat a lot. Uh, look at all my notes and realize that I'm not prepared enough. Blank, and cry. Yeah, hide under the table. <laughs> it's a pretty good system I've got, <laughs> but it could use a little bit of improvement. Well. <laughs> I, it's a, it, what you're describing is a full on mental breakdown. <laughs> Some call it that, sure. <laughs> but running that actual session and how to like keep all of your stuff, because we figured out how to plan the session, but now how do you run the session? That's daunting. Yeah. I mean, it just requires to be on your toes and be able to keep things going forward. And it's a, it's a lot of like reading the room and figuring out who's, needs what and how am I going to interact? How am I going to put this interaction into the scope of a rogue? And then how do I make sure that the cleric gets something out of this as well? Uh, there's just, there's so much. Seems like a lot. It's It does. It does seem like a lot. And it doesn't have to be as bad as all of that. Well, we need some help. We need some help with all of this. That's why we found somebody for that. Our guest today is Eric Frankhaus. He's an Any Award winner. He's currently a freelance fantasy cartographer, a game designer, and a graphic designer. He's done work for Fraud God Games and, well, pretty much every publisher that you care to name. He's a three-time Iron DM champion and has finished in the top three for 10 years. What is an Iron DM? you say. Well, it's actually competitive DMing, and we need to find out his secrets. So, welcome, Eric. How you doing? Oh, wait, am I supposed to be Necessary Evil for this recording? Uh, <laughs> so, okay, we got to know what is Necessary Evil as a counterpart to you. All right, so everybody who does Iron GM, like you said, it's, it's a competitive storytelling competition. Uh, it's 3.5. You're given three ingredients, one hour to prep a five-hour adventure, and during that hour, you cannot talk to the players. You give them three words to kind of build their thing, and then you can, well, I mean, I leave and go to the bar and drink and then come back. So <laughs> everyone does it differently, and everyone has an alter ego like WWE. That makes sense to anybody who watches wrestling. Necessary Evil is my alter ego. <laughs> uh, 
I'm playing a heel. No one wanted to be a heel. And everyone's like, you have an ego. You should be one. I'm like, yeah, obviously I'm not a good guy. So let's fucking do it. And Necessary Evil came from, do you remember? I don't know if you guys played back in 3.0. There was a book that came out from AEG called Necessary Evil. It rings a bell. Yeah. That book had something in it where you could use a person as a human body shield. <laughs> okay. Like pick them up and use them as a feat. A good rule. And uh, it stuck because it was the only thing in that book I ever used because the rest of it was AEG. So, I mean, we all know. It, you know, they made sneak attack dice up to a D12. It was ridiculous. <laughs> it stuck. And my table's like, yeah, you should be that. You've always been that. And uh, you should run with it. So I did. And it is probably the most fun I have at a convention. And it was an accident. I wasn't even supposed to be there. Someone bowed out and they said, hey, you were going to be a player. Do you want a GM instead? I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. I don't know what I'm doing, but yeah, let's do it. I took third that year. Nice. And from then on out, I just kind of stuck through it. It's, it's everything you learn in improv on steroids and made for tabletop gaming. <laughs> <laughs> so necessary evil came about because your players suggested it. We think you're great for this episode, but what about your style made you necessary evil in the first place? Everyone thinks I TPK parties and murder everybody. I'm actually known for running horror like really running really good okay. immersive horror settings. Ones that make people a little uh, a little worried sometimes. Like <laughs> That's fun. Like seriously worried. <laughs> and that becomes a problem for a lot of people. So they're like, hey, you should be necessary evil. I'm like, I, I guess I can do it. Okay. Yeah, let's go with it. And then it became the ego and the show and everything else that was involved. Just evolved it. into what it is, yeah. You got it. Well... We are going to hop over to the hero stage to pick Eric's brain, so let's head over there right now. All right. This is the hero stage, where fantastic folk have a spotlight turned to them to tell the tales of their adventurous lives. We brought Eric on because we really wanted to know from somebody of his pedigree and skill level, Eric, what would you suggest as a couple of the top points for somebody brand new to DMing to really pay attention to during a game? And how do you run a game in a really easy way? So they've already gotten themselves into the mindset. They've already made some preparations beforehand. And now they're sitting down ready to run a game. So I remember running my first game. And maybe that's not something a lot of people actually remember because you usually try to forget it. <laughs> I stole my uncle's first edition books because... Uh, that's what kids do. And I decided to run a game and I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know the rules. I'd watched him play it before. I'd watched other people play it before. Uh, my library had a D&D group when I was really young and I'm pretty old. Uh, and they had it because somebody there loved it. And the first thing I learned was the rules don't actually matter. Nice. They matter for the players a lot. And I'm not saying you shouldn't know them as a GM. Please don't think that I'm saying break the rules and do what you want. But those rules are there as guidelines to players to interact with the story you tell. And I think the GM should have his own set of rules that he runs by. If he's running a horror game, the top level thing should be running horror, making sure he instills a level of fear, have it be through mechanics he's taken from another game, something out of his head. But prepare to run a, a game in the style you want. And the number one rule for me is let your players know the type of game you're running. Hmm. If they sit down, and you prep this amazing dungeon crawl, and they think you're doing a exploration hex crawl game, you kind of fucking led your players on. And you're not going to get the response you want. So number one, set the tone and set it between you and the players. 
and use the rules that you need to make it work. So right now, obviously, 5e is the hot. Like everyone's running 5e. D&D is, is the jam. There's 42 million people running it. If you're going to run D&D, there's a DMG that no one looks through. And there are rules in there that nobody uses. So if you're, for example, and everyone's heard this, but going to run a water game, know how water combat rules and drowning works and, and know how, uh, how fatigue works. Use those things to fit your campaign. If you're running high magic, use high magic. Don't then tell your players they can't use magic and magic doesn't work. And, oh, yeah, sorry, detect magic doesn't see it. No, what, what are you, you're running a high magic game. So lean into what you're going to run and let your players lean in as well. My number two is say yes more than no. You got to say yes more than no. This is the cardinal rule of games in general and improv. Yes and is the number one rule in improv. Let's say you're not running a heavy story-driven game. You are a little more combat-centric. If players are trying to do something that's not in the book, you guys know the rules for 5e. It's advantage and disadvantage. That's the game. (laughs) And a plus two once in a while, if you found that hidden rule hidden in the book there, Go with it. If there's no rule and the guy wants to do something or girl wants to, you know, I want to cast fairy fire to not only light up the room, but can I use it to do, to see the magical runes on the wall? Make her have an arcane check and make it work. And I believe the third rule for me that helps you a lot and grounds your group together. This is just the basic three. I learned a lot in indie role playing. Even though I don't run it all the time, I love games like Blades in the Dark. And the idea of canonizing what you do even if it's just that single session, if that woman uses fairy fire to read arcane runes on the wall, say, all right, guys, fairy fire now allows you to read things on the wall. Is everyone cool with that? Like nice. this is a type of rune in the underdark and that's how they read it. Yeah. Canon. Just write it down. Yeah. And cool. make a list of canon rules that your players follow every time they sit at your table. And if you start a new game, wipe those out if you don't like them and start with new ones or take the ones you like if you're building a home thing. So that's my three quick, like get prepped, lean into what you're doing. Rules don't matter as much as you think and canonize what you're doing because it makes everyone be on the same page. And I think that's the most important first step you can take. Well, it sounds like a lot of that boils down to communication. And like you said, just being on the same page is so crucial. So I get that. That last point you made sounds like such a cool way to make the players feel like they're contributing in more of a way than they normally would to the world that they're playing in. Yeah, my buddy Danny Grimes, and he's an amazing GM, and he does Wizards of the Couch. It's a podcast where they bring people in to talk on it. Nice. And uh, he mentioned, yeah, it's a mimic, which is even fucking better. The couch <laughs> is a mimic. He talks about how it's it's a collective experience. You're really not telling a story to them. You're kind of telling a story together. And I agree with that. Not all of it, but a lot. You're making the skeleton and your players are filling it out. Mm. So, for example, when I write my adventures, I have maybe a box of text at the top or an index card front and back of like things I know I want, cool scenes that I want to have happen. And then I do a plot web and I leave space around my plot web and just fill out things as they do it. And I take more notes after a game than I do during the game because it stops me from railroading my players too much. That's smart. And so those notes that you take afterwards, what does that consist of? Like you're using it to inform your next game? Inform my next game and to to set up. So like a session zero to me is making characters. I actually, I just did this. I have a brand new group that I'm kind of running right now. And I did a session zero. We make characters together because these people have never really played together before. I think that's important. Even if it takes more time than you want. Yeah. It lets you feel out as a GM because you aren't really part of character creation really deep. You're helping guide but you're not making a character. You're taking notes, making NPCs to go with them. 
but it allows you to view your group playing and decide who they are as people and what they want. If you aren't giving them what they want as a GM, I'm going to say it, you suck as a GM. <laughs> Give your players what they want. It's not all about you, man. It's it's about the group that you're playing with. And this is coming from the person who plays a necessary evil egomaniac. It's, <laughs> it's about the group and telling them, hey, oh, you want high magic? You guys really want to play high level? Give them some of the stuff they want because they will be invested in your game. And I imagine that's what helps you a lot with those competitions is just reacting to people in the moment. Yep. At learning to read what people want. And if you can't read people well, just asking questions. The, the best GM listens more than they talk. Nice. That's one of my best kind of new DM tips is doing a post-game recap and asking yeah. those questions after the fact. What did you like most? What did you not like? Because there's that old saying, whatever gets whatever gets measured gets paid attention to and whatever gets paid attention to usually improves. Yeah, it's very true. We're all so used to reading a formulaic adventure and running it in that line. It doesn't have a, a sandbox feel. And I think a lot of that comes with reading 60 pages, trying to contain it all in your head. <laughs> and then when they don't follow that, you're annoyed because you wasted time, or at least it feels like it. If you don't do that and you have highlighted points, when you're done, if they interact with an NPC and they really like that NPC and all you did was write down, for example, what they look like, personality, and if you do voices, kind of a pitch, tone, common words they use. Yeah. And at the top of this index card, because I make an index card box, I just write their name, NPC, and blank stuff like, oh, level, strength. I don't put any numbers in there until I use them. Yeah, Nothing. that makes sense. It's blank. And I fill it out as I go. Well, after a session of like, oh, yeah, this person is really important. He's a noble and he's selling them weapons under the table to fund an army that no one knows he's doing this because it's against his own people. I start filling that character. out. He is becoming an important NPC. If there's a dungeon they went to but didn't finish it, you don't need to know what the whole dungeon is. Just print a Dyson map out, draw on top of that map, put a name at the top. And if there's something they didn't finish, put that in your notes at the end. Go, hey, man, they didn't unlock this door remind them through an NPC <laughs> there's something still in there they didn't get. It makes them go back what they feel like is on their own accord. Even though you're just leading them to what you want. Yeah. You're mentioning NPCs a lot, and I think that's a huge part for me of running a game. What do you do with your NPCs that make your characters really glom onto them? <laughs> in the words of Matt Mercer, and I, I'm not a huge fan of Critical Role. I know that's probably going to be blasphemy. I like it. <laughs> I don't love it. I don't digest it. He said that the NPCs he doesn't think are going to be popular are the ones everybody likes. Oh, yeah. And it happens all the time. No matter who your big bad is, no matter what you do, they're going to hang on to the character. You're like, oh, God, that's not the NPC I thought it was going to be. But you can give them tidbits to interact. If you don't give your NPCs and monsters personality, yeah. then they're just a hit point battery to overcome yeah. or a problem to solve with no interaction. If you cut out the line between two dots, you don't have a story, you have combat. Have that be physical, have that be um, just social, you don't have anything in between, which is literally what the role in role play is for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite stories related to that is a great story that I read off of Reddit. Um, it was somebody just sharing how crazy that that usual event plays out. So you create this NPC on the fly. You're not really making anything in advance. So you're pulling from, I guess, in essence, your lived experience. 
So in this guy's story, he said, yeah, he had plotted out this huge campaign with all kinds of political intrigue and a big bad that was going to destroy the world. And the players decided to glom on to one of these sellers, one of the merchants that was selling them items who had just offhandedly mentioned because they brought it up in just grasping at straws that her husband was really awful to her. And now all of a sudden his entire campaign was railroaded with the party's desire to visit vengeance upon this person that was mean to the NPC that was selling them. (laughs) And it was just like, that will happen every time because you're creating somebody that's relatable versus the gigantic big bad that's unraveling the universe. Yeah. Sounds like a Tuesday. (laughs) That happens a lot. But NPCs are, I think, really one of the GM's main things to do. If you think about it, a player doesn't run an NPC. A GM does. Combat, they take part of it. They run the numbers. Some of them track hit points. In certain games, somebody handles the initiative or the initiative tree. I've been in games where the GM just tells the story, and the players kind of handle everything else to keep them interactive. It helps them be involved in the story. Yeah. And they are involved in the combat, then even if they're normally not. But the one thing they don't do is really run NPCs. Uh, That's the GM's ability to not only interact with the players, but to move story in the direction you want without actually leashing your player and dragging them to a destination or doing a bunch of exposition or. Yeah, but they're a cornerstone. And I I do think they're really important. My actually, my next podcast I'm doing is on monsters and giving them a personality because we (laughs) all played D and D for the dragons, you know, they're memorable moments. Everyone likes stranger things because of the demigorgon just as much as the kids. Yeah. You need to give those things personality. And monster personalities for me are kind of my big next thing. Your environments and set pieces matter. If you work in the video game or movie industry, there are more pieces of art on the environment than there usually are on the characters. Hmm. You'll have a turnaround and their gear and everything else. But again, that's the player. When you look at environments, it lets you know where the hell you are in the world and what you're doing. I think Numenera probably did the, in the last three years that I can think of, They've done the best job at giving you more environment art than character art. Okay. And it allows you to paint the story you need when you sit down to tell a tale. When you look at a D&D book, yes, there's some maps, but for the most part, it's just cool, dynamic-looking monster and character art. You don't know where you are. Avertus <laughs> is in the hell, and they don't give you enough images of the landscape. That's my opinion. I think that really paints a picture, and I think that's something that GMs miss a lot. They think of the old-school dungeon crawl, where you go, you smell this in the dungeon, the walls look like this, that matters. But you could paint a great picture of what a place looks like before they even walk in. And it sets the tone for what they're about to do. So setting tone, again, going back to the first statement, continues in the environment and NPCs. That's really good. I really like that point. How do you continue to work that theme in as you tell like a horror story, for example? Like you're saying you're looking in a dungeon how do you describe it that keeps it on that theme? Um, what do you? What setting do you guys play in right now? Is it your own? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Is it high magic? Is it fantasy? Is it horror? Is it modern? What is it? It's probably pretty close to textbook Faerun. It's, it's kind of like a low magic desert survival campaign. In settings like that, do you guys have like rolling tundras and sand dunes and wastelands? Yes. Okay. So for me, then it goes like this. If I am setting up a story and the story is 
let's say it's not travel because your players don't like the red air. They rather red arrow than do the travel. Yeah. yeah. And they show up to their destination and their goal is to find a long lost magical artifact or object that brings water, which is something that is missing. Hey, there you go. When you set that area up going from a dry, arid, rolling red sands to something that has puddles of mud and water and cracked earth, and you can see burrow holes that have not collapsed back in like you're used to when you see ank hags and weird creatures that live in those deserts. Instead, you're seeing small whirlpools of water. And the door is muddied over from the sand kind of drying in the sun. There's a source of water in this area that isn't something you see normally. Normally what happens is the sand would just blow over and you'd have to dig out. You're cracking the mud off. The door has actually got mold and mildew on it. Not common things in, in the setting. And while I could sit and have you pick the lock to the door, we all know you're going to get in. It's what you do. But when you open the door, the smell is not normal. Mold and decay and fungus spores start to pour out. And inside of it, there's a set of glowing eyes. And you've seen these glowing eyes before. You remember back in the dunes of Zagamar, there were some creatures that you never got your hands on. And you remember gurgling noises. I need you to roll for initiative. <laughs> so when you break it down Boom. and give them a setting change and paint that text and bring them into the combat, I usually set a map down after that because then it, it cements yeah. what you're doing. Even if you're not having combat on that map, if that map is just there, it lets them look at the environment. And I believe if you're going to paint an environment, let your players fucking use the environment. That's fair. Use puddles and waters and drop-offs and waterfalls and things that they can use to drown enemies or drag them through mud and slow them or, or you know, make lines. Let them have tactical moments. Absolutely. And have the environment be part of those monsters encounter. So I like painting the picture and then dropping them in or, or when they're in the middle of it. I love explaining a scene. And I learned this from John Harper. I love explaining a scene in full. Let's say you even explain the beginning of the combat, what these monsters are going to do. Almost like that Sherlock Holmes level. Of, I've been here. I've done that. I know what's going on. And you have people's passive numbers. You know their skills. If you know they kind of foresee things as a warrior, the warrior usually doesn't get the airtime that a wizard's going to get. Give them the airtime explaining the scene and panning back and going, you know this may fall out this way. This may come. What do you want to do? And give them an advance of, oh my God, I've heard tales of these creatures, the glowing eye things. They don't only spit water. They grab you and fill your lungs with it. They grapple you to the ground. I've, I've heard of these things. They are terrible. Uh, and then they suck the life essence out of you over weeks, almost like a water bag. What do you guys want to do? This warrior knows this. He's told these tales during campfires and you've given now your warrior a time to shine that isn't just swinging a sword with that uh, description of that environment i'm thinking of all kinds of ways as a warrior to use it and i think one of the things that stood out just there to me was that you contrasted everything that they were familiar with with your description so i think i'm going to start trying to use that a lot more when you put change in front of a player uh, what actually happens that comparison it makes them listen and, and then they have to think about oh God, this is different. How am I going to interact with this? This isn't same old, same old trekking through. And it's just one tool. You, you shouldn't use the tool all the time. When I teach new GMs, I, I usually give them index cards with 
cool um, set pieces and cool tools that you can use. I say it's like Batman's utility belt. Pick one and use it or look through them and use it as you go. But never repeat one back to back. Okay. Unless it's a monster and it is attached to them. Don't ever repeat the same trope over and over again and make sure you're aware of it. I just have a checklist in the front of my book that kind of lets me know what I did last. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I did this. I'm not doing that again. And I'll go through it. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. You said that, I mean, really, these are kind of entry level things to consider as you're starting to run a Mm -hmm. game. Let's say our DM gets a little bit more advanced. Where do they go? Where Where's the your favorite resources to get that next level? There's a couple of things, but I think the most pertinent I've been doing lately, um, going back to the, the fallout of my recent group and playing and running more things online at conventions, for me, it's practicing the the soft skills, being able to like read a person. Uh, I, I have I have an advantage. I was a bodyguard for eight years. That was my job was reading people. Wow. Anyone can learn it. They can learn to look at someone and tell if they're having enjoyment or they're not just by how they're sitting at the table. We have, we're in the time of YouTube. You can literally watch videos on how to read people. Hmm. And when people are making characters, like I said before, that's your moment to do that and take notes. And then I usually, and this is something I learned way, unfortunately too late. Let's say I play six sessions and we close the story arc, right? I will go back for maybe an hour, hour and a half of the next session. And I was like, all right, everybody, we're going to do downtime because downtime can be extremely character building. Um, everyone's watched TV where you get the montage of like training and everything else. Slow that piece down and, and talk about what have you done over the last, let's say, two years of downtime. Don't be afraid of that as a GM. Embrace it. It lets players make changes. It lets them do story elements that they can't do when they're going from week to week to week to week to week of just grinding. Yeah. Not everybody wants to live in WoW. Yeah. Yeah, considering how your character is changing and evolving is so crucial to continuing that story. That makes a lot of sense. Especially when you're running a game with not a lot of options. D&D does not put out a lot of books right now. There's only so many ways to play a fighter, a wizard, a sorcerer, and so on. And to do more, I really believe that Wizards of the Coast and Dungeons & Dragons, when they built this new system, really wanted to put some of the creativeness back to the table instead of them pumping out a new book every single month. Yeah. And to do that, you have to pause session and talk about what you want to do. You can look through your canon list, develop things off of that. Uh, The new Strongholds and Followers for Matt Coville is a great way to add retainers and new NPCs that matter. Give players options that aren't in the book, and they usually love them, especially if they got to help create them. As a GM, that'll take some time. So do it at the end of your session. Do it on Discord during downtime in between. Call the one player who has an idea. Like, literally, I know everyone hates the phone, but just call them or call on Discord and say, hey, you got 30 minutes. Let's talk about your character. They will usually be pretty enthusiastic because everybody wants to talk about their character. Oh, hell yes. But as a GM, you can learn and build from that. If they're really excited about their horse as a paladin, even though the new fine steed sucks. (laughs) It's horrible. Your steed is horrible. I'm sorry. It's just bad. <laughs> you could give them a feat to make it better or a better version of that spell and talk with them about, you wanted a griffin? I'm sorry, that's not an option, but why don't we make it an option? That, yeah. that player will be ecstatic. Never be afraid to do something and take it back. Mm. If you do something and it doesn't work, sit down with them and be like, all right, <laughs> this is, I went a little overboard. Can we dial this back, but still have you keep it? Maybe, maybe it's summonable, not always there. Maybe that griffin ruins 
combat because the flight is too much for you as a GM. Yeah. Maybe his scenes are separate. Like when you run Star Wars games, there's always somebody who wants to be in a starfighter. There's always somebody who doesn't. And you have to run both of those at the same time. Learn to do that and move the camera from player to player as you're doing it. Like if something awesome is happening, write down, gonna blow a ship up. We're gonna pause. I'm gonna cut to the other person. But don't let them know. Just have blaster fire going at them and go to the next person. Um, and the other advanced thing I would tell you is learn to file the serial numbers off of other people's ideas. <laughs> Find okay. shit you love tv movie video yeah. games whatever but you need to strip it down to its skeleton before you use it because if you go to run something that's like the thing but you're not saying you're running a thing game and it feels like the thing people are gonna fucking know yeah. if you have a young audience my recommendation run something that's gremlins because they've never seen it <laughs> <laughs> just go back to the banks that they haven't seen that's gold <laughs> yep. billy eilish has never seen it ever if anyone knows who that is, which I'm sure you do, if your audience is around that age, they probably haven't seen Gremlins unless yeah. their parents made them watch it and those parents rock. <laughs> <laughs> good job, parents. A lot of really good stuff coming out of Eric in this episode. We've got stripping down your ideas, communicating with your players, saying yes, making them feel like badasses, which we've been saying that for a while and we love that. But mm -hmm. if you want more of Eric's work, you have a podcast. I do. And it is coming back. Um, I took a little break from it with some audio things and whatnot. Everything that I do right now is under Eric Frankhouse presents. It's just my name and presents my portfolio for my maps are on there. My Patreon is that place as well. Patreon is me doing micro settings, which are settings that are under 70 pages right now. Magic and monsters marks of men is what I'm doing. That is a high, high magic starting at third level is your bare minimum two mountain kingdoms fighting through the flensing fields where magic constantly changes the environment in that battleground. And on the other end, you're doing high courtesan stuff. And I'm currently making a really great uh, intrigue court game so that everyone can be Ooh. involved with what they do. And I don't mean crappy ship combat or someone stuck doing shields, not that crap. <laughs> Literally everyone has a real job that really makes sense and it's fast your court combat so to speak is 30 minutes to an hour max unless your players get deep into the role play that is out right now if you back it you can get the 1.7 version and uh all custom gods and everything and then i'm also doing my plotted adventures which is a little different that is a map a map of the plot web like bullet points on it and then an actual plot web and a say 30 to 40 playlist that you listen to instead of reading 60 fucking pages as a GM who hates reading through 60 pages, I wanted something easy that during your work week you can listen to, make notes on the plot web, make them in your journal, write them on your hand. I don't care where you do it, but you can listen to it at work and then go, holy crap, I know what I'm doing on Sunday. Nice. Brilliant. And then EFP is also the podcast which is coming back out, which is tips and tricks and digesting the industry, talking to people in the field, I did a really good interview with Brian Berg from TPK Games just about publishing. Nice. I'm doing one here coming up with uh, a freelancer that is how they got into the industry and why not to do it. Mm. Oh, wow. Um, and I'm, and it's an honest thing. It's If you still want to do it after we say no, then it's for you. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm a little all over the place. You can find me on Discord if you want to ask questions. And the only side hustle that I have really isn't uh, gaming is I make beard oil. And that's all right by both of us, too. We are into everything you're making. Yeah, Beard Brigade Company. 
I get bored easily. And the way not to be bored is learn something new. Very good. By the way, I've listened to probably six of your episodes now over the last week. You guys are killing it. Please do not stop. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's super enjoyable. I like that it's cordial and I love that it feels like um, not just people. You guys are related, correct? Brothers? You yeah. betcha. There is a chemistry there that isn't on every podcast. So don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> that means a lot. Thanks. All right. Well, uh, yeah, let's close this sucker out. Thank you very much, Eric, for being on the show. Anytime, man. You can cool. seriously listen to Eric's podcast. It is absolutely tremendous. It's Eric Frankhouse Presents. And definitely check out his Patreon because that is literally the next step. Like everything that you are producing right now, Eric, is everything that a new GM needs to get better. Um, <laughs> yeah. From the short, from the, yeah, the short settings uh, that are easily digestible. We talked about that in the last episode about just how much you know, that cognitive load of learning some of these campaign books is, but really you just need the setting. You just need the beats and mm -hmm. time to rip on those. So yeah, man. build micro to macro if you're doing your own. Hell yeah. And a quick point of order. We still have our hint to give out this week for the contest. Yes. For the contest for the book, the monsters know what they're doing by Keith Amon. And as a recap of the rules, just write a single iTunes review. Tell us which one is yours. And you can guess every time we release another hint, which means one per episode, which means that we're up to three guesses. Yes. You got, you got three guesses to get this one right. You can do it. So what's the hint? An arrow flies over your shoulder. You recognize the fletching of the party ranger. It flies into the darkness towards the creature, and you hear the hit with a satisfying splorch <laughs> but the creature continues to cackle as it steps into the light seemingly happier and healthier Ooh, interesting okay well you can dm those guesses to us on twitter instagram or discord and if you're the first to guess correctly we will ship to you this beautiful copy that we have sitting on the desk right here of the monsters know what they're doing by keith almond Thanks to Tabletop Audio for the sound effects that you heard on our show. You can follow us at Hook and Chance on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord, and Reddit. Okay, Eric, you want to help us wrap this one up? Yeah, absolutely. Three, Thanks. two, one. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. And play, and play great, great, great games, games everybody. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs>